0: We have a thing at Presbytery called a point of personal privilege. That's where you get to say something that's not on the agenda and be kind of selfish. So before I preach, and if you're visiting, this is my last Sunday here as the interim pastor at Trinity. I want to exercise a point of personal privilege. So Janice, please come forward. It is so highly appropriate that I publicly thank the Lord for my dear bride's prayers Encouragement, support, wisdom, and patient endurance with a big clunk like me. So thank you. So, so, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Secondly, tremendous joy to co-labor with your staff. It's a terrific staff. It's been such a privilege. They sent me uh, goodbye on uh, Tuesday and had all kinds of great, funny things to say about me, which was appropriate. (laughs) Uh, Thirdly, fantastic deacons. Your deacons are just so great. They're so reliable. So much happens here behind the scenes that you don't know, but they keep the machine rolling and thirdly, I wanted to acknowledge the work of your ruling elders. They are, I've really worked up close with them for the last 18 months. I want to publicly thank the Lord for their integrity. They make principled decisions, they have persevered through many challenging situations, <clears throat> and they have done so with humility and an eye for what is best for the sheep and the glory of God. I'm so grateful for your ruling elders. If you're a ruling elder, just stand where you are that we might acknowledge you. Thank you. One that's good. All right. Thank you. So our scripture reading is on the wall. There's an outline in your bulletin as well. The Apostle Peter, I'm just jumping right into a pericope in 1 Peter 4. The Apostle Peter writes this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your... Now, what would be a reasonable way for Peter to finish the sentence? Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your worship. What's more important than your worship? Your family's welfare. Your service in the church. Your occupational endeavors. Your love for one another. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your enjoyment in the Lord. Nothing more precious than that in all of existence. That's not... How he finishes the sentence. He says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Notice he didn't tell you to pray, he assumes you're praying. He assumes you're a praying person. Translated, In light of the second coming of Jesus, the end of all things is at hand. Be sober-minded and self-controlled. Let nothing hinder. Let nothing stand in the way. Let nothing compromise you continuing as a man, woman, boy, or girl of prayer. So that raises at least these questions. Number one, what is an essential element of a praying person, desperate dependence, or if you will, dependent desperation. The praying person has an eye on the present and the future. When the curtain falls on human history, Jesus Christ returns in his glory. The final judgment takes place. The praying person The spiritually vital person is desperate to pray, to stay in contact with the one who is the source of all good, grace, strength, wisdom, beauty, and power, Jesus. Prayer is the language of dependence, and it's dependence that fuels self-control and sober-mindedness. So how do you know you're in your right mind? fair question. We all want to be in our right minds. What's one telltale evidence you're in your right mind? You're living in light of the final judgment. It's interesting if you look at the context, the reason there's a therefore here is if you go back just a little bit in 1 Peter 4, Peter is reminding his readers that God has rescued them from a self-indulgent, self-gratifying lifestyle, and the people he's uh, delivered them from might be maligning their new faith in Jesus. Here's what he writes beginning at verse 3, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And then down to verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's annexed the final judgment. A praying person is acutely aware that God will call all things into account. In other words, I don't want anything creeping into my thinking that distracts me from the end of all things is at hand. Or put it this way, you want to be on speaking terms intimately with Jesus when he appears. So, clear-headedness and self-control are great things in and of themselves, but according to Peter, what purpose do they serve? They serve you continuing as a praying person. Maybe Peter is thinking back to the Garden of Gethsemane. He and his buddies have fallen asleep while Jesus is in the greatest torment emotionally, spiritually of his life. He's praying to his father, and he says to Peter and the apostles, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. Let's round this point off with two obvious things. We are not in our right minds If we're not praying people, and secondly, the key element to persevering to the end of history, to the end of your life, is prayer. It's beautiful that he's already assured them God hears their prayers. Chapter 3, verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. Second question. What does a praying person relish? What do they savor? What is precious to them? Simply this. The sacred privilege of talking with the Lord. So I don't want you to hear the word prayer. First of all, if you're feeling guilty, just put it under your seat. Dispense with that. This sermon is not about guilt. This is one pastor's final attempt to lay before you what is absolutely, critically, indispensably, vitally important for the future of the church, prayer, if, if that wasn't obvious to you by now. Put the guilt under the chair. You're, I'm not here to guilt you. So so I know some of you are feeling, I don't pray enough. Okay, we know that. We know that. <laughs> First and foremost, I want you to think of prayer not as something you do in your closet, but as continuously responding to the facts. How's that for a definition of prayer? Continuously responding to the facts. What facts do I have in mind? The fact that God is everywhere present in the universe and that God sees all, God knows all, God hears all, and God controls everything. So stay in constant communication with that. Person, as if you're in the deepest, darkest cave, it's treacherous in the cave, and you are clinging to the only person with a flashlight on the way out. Prayer binds us to the Lord who sees, knows, understands, controls everything. Do you see when you pray what you declare about the character of God? You're declaring that God is in control. That God has all the authority, that God has all the ability, and that God has all the desire to bless the prayers of his people. So why wouldn't you talk to him about everything? Everything. Do you pray about everything? You see this ooze out in Paul's writing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. He's not saying don't go to work. He's not saying don't go to the gym. He's not saying don't eat a family dinner. He's saying live in a spirit of constant communication with the obvious God who's everywhere present, knows all, sees all, hears all, is in control of all things. Romans 12, 12, be devoted to prayer. Colossians 4.2, uh, Kelly preached on this a number of weeks ago. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And Paul ends his description of the, of the uh, armor we put on in spiritual warfare with this. Praying at all times in the spirit. So, beloved, is there a time you don't want to pray? There's not a time you don't want to pray. So it must be true that the times you feel like praying... That's too precious not to pray. The times you don't feel like praying are too precarious to stay in, so pray. You got it? You up to praying? Pray. You're not up to praying? Pray. (laughs) Why is the alternative worse? What do you like when you're not prayerful? What do you like when you're not self controlled and sober minded? you're probably ruled by your passions. You're probably tempted profoundly by all the things Peter just annexed that the Gentiles do because they don't know God or don't believe there's a judgment coming for all of that. You don't pray probably because you're content or complacent with the status quo. So I want you to think of prayer as being prompted by discontentment with the way things are, the broken, yucky way things are. And when you pray out of a holy discontentment, you show how much you have in common with God because you refuse to accept as normal sickness so you pray. You refuse to accept as normal racism, so you work for racial reconciliation in the community. You refuse to accept as normal political corruption, so you pray for your political leaders. You refuse to accept as normal the cycle of poverty, so you do something about it. Prayers motivated by discontentment with the status quo, and that's why we're confident God hears. He is as dis- disgusted and discontent with the status quo as we are yet more so. So, He loves to hear your prayers. And does God change the status quo through the prayers of His people? No doubt. What else does He change? You. <laughs> See, you can't pray out of a holy discontentment for the status quo, without the Lord searching you for what you're praying about. You're moved to pray for someone's marriage. Good thing. Will you pray for your own marriage? I know this person that, as far as I can tell, struggles with the love of money. I pray against that for that person. But guess what? The tides are turned on me. Will I equally pray for my own soul's temptation to struggle with the love of money? You pray that so-and-so would be your parents. You pray for your kids to be more grateful, right? It seems like one of the things that marks youth is ingratitude. Are you grateful? Plead with the Lord for their gratitude, but look at yourself. You know this person that struggles with pride. Pray for them. Pray for them. But in the same breath... The Lord wants you to search your heart for your own struggle with pride. Perhaps one reason we don't pray is we have such contentment with the status quo. So quiz, here's the first question on the exam when the sermon's done, is there something about prayer that's mysterious? Answer. By all means, yes. Prayer's mysterious. God changes things in this fallen world. He heals, He delivers, He guides, He helps, He provides, He rescues, He changes the status quo, but not always when we want Him to. Sometimes the answer is wait. Sometimes the answer is I've got my own timetable. This is why Jesus taught His disciples to pray with persistence. But it is no mystery, beloved, that he longs to hear the prayers of his people. You will never hear God say when you go to prayer, I'm too busy. You will never hear God say, oh, you again. You will never hear God say, I don't have time for this. You will never hear God rebuff you, crying out to him in your time of need. Absolutely never. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 7 and 8, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. But be willing. As you're seeking to get, be willing to what? As you're praying to get, and you should, what should you be willing to do? As you're praying to get, be willing to, can you see what's coming, give up. Because the way you know you're absolutely certain God is committed to changing the status quo is what God did about the status quo, and that is He gave up His Son. Jesus Christ came to this garbage, don't we call the earth? He subjected Himself to constant ridicule from the beginning of His ministry. They were hunting Him down to kill Him. He submitted himself to the heinous acts and false accusations of human beings. He submitted himself. He gave up himself to the death of the cross. You want to know how committed God is to the status quo? Look at Jesus' cross. It will give you every confidence God is with you in your prayers to change what's wrong with this world. Christ suffered He bore the penalty of your sins. He went through unimaginable hell on the cross to guarantee you have a father to call upon in prayer. Third question. What does a praying person do? Pretty simply, they carve out special time to pray and they pray spontaneously as needs might arise. So you're saying, okay, now comes the guilty part. I don't carve out enough time to pray. Do you, want to, you don't have to raise your hand. That's okay. <laughs> I know that about you. I know that about myself. So I can think of three reasons that this is difficult for you. I don't have time. So ask the Lord where you're going to get the time. He'll tell you. Does God want a communion with you in prayer? Absolutely. Ask the Lord. He'll find you the time. I don't have the desire. We can be transparent with each other. I I don't have any interest in praying, God. I feel dry. I feel like a hypocrite if I pray. I stink right now. Why would I pray? Start right there. Lord, I don't feel like praying. Help. Lord, I can barely open my mouth. Fill my heart with your spirit. Lord, open my mouth. Just start where you are. You're free to do that. And thirdly, you don't know what to pray. Fair enough. My suggestion is open your Bible, and you'll find the Word of God prompts all kinds of prayers. One book of the Bible, you'll find a lot of things to pray about, about the way life is wired to work, and that book would be Proverbs. <laughs> I got it in. Last sermon, I got it Yeah. You know, uh, Jesse had all the staff write out for me their favorite proverb, that, their proverb that reminded them. I mean, wasn't that a thoughtful gift from dear Jesse? So start with it. Look, what has God given you in the Psalms? 150 prayers that tap into every human emotion. So if you don't know what to pray, the Bible is a wonderful prompt to pray. So what does a praying person do? They carve out some time to be quiet with the Lord. Secondly, they pray spontaneously. So Mark King, one of your elders, become a dear, dear friend of mine. He's standing in my office door, and I'm sort of looking over my notes. We're talking a little bit. He goes, wait a minute. Let me pray for you. He knelt down, put his hand on my shoulder, and prayed for me. Prayed for the sermon. Prayed for your hearing of the sermon. It was a spontaneous act. I didn't need to say, Mark, pray for me. And I know many of you have been praying for me. My wife is a woman of spontaneous prayer. We hear about a need. We might be out walking. Somebody sends a text. She just bursts into prayer for that need. Why? Because she lives in a spirit of prayer. And it's not weird to call on the Lord because we're just communing with the Lord all day long. So carve out time for spontaneous prayers. Uh, sometimes it might be adoration. You see a lovely azalea Bush. Praise the Lord. Praise him for his beauty. Praise him for creation. Thanksgiving. You have breath in your lungs. Thank him. When I start exercising, I say, Lord, I live on a ventilator. You're keeping my lungs working. You're keeping my heart beating. Thank you. Confession. Something's going to miss in your heart. You're looking at something you shouldn't be looking at. Confess it. Plead with the Spirit to rescue you. And then, of course, supplication. Cry out for the needs of others. Finally, what does a praying person experience? So, a lot we could say here. I'll just walk through a couple little things, and we'll conclude with this wonderful verse that's from Hebrews 4. What do you experience? One thing you experience is the joy of answered prayer. How many of you know the joy of answered prayer? Okay, well, I long for the day, your elders, deacons, and staff long for the day when every single hand goes up. Every, because you're living in a spirit of prayer, expressing your dependence on the Lord. Parents, may I encourage you to do this if you've got kiddos still in the house. Get a little journal. Keep it somewhere near the dining room table. And when you finish your meal and you have family prayers together, take specific prayer requests, put them in there and keep it there and refer to that so your kids learn, oh, we prayed about grandma's sickness two months ago. She's all better. Check it off as an answer prayer. Keep a log so that your children become people who spontaneously pray. God teaches us perseverance and patience. When he doesn't answer our prayers as quickly as we might desire. How many of you prayed for someone to be saved for over five decades? Now, that's okay if you don't raise your hand. But some of you have done that. You've kept pleading, pleading, pleading. Have any of you seen God answer that prayer just before that person died? And just, just curiosity, any hands go up to see that? Yeah. What a glory. Keep praying. God teaches us patience and perseverance. When you pray, you have a concrete way of expressing your gratitude towards the Lord. I'm thinking of Psalm 116, verse 12. The psalmist says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Great question! You sense how blessed you are. You sense the benefits of belonging to Jesus, the grace, the mercy, the understanding, the power, the provision, the goodness. You sense that. How do you respond? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Guess what the answer is? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I'll keep praying. What a wonderful way to show your gratitude to God for all of his blessings. I'll pray. Another uh, a benefit is humility. When we pray, we're begging for God to do something, and we realize we're not in control. <laughs> we're not in control, but we pray to the one who is. You get direction. You pray, and God begins to clarify priorities. I'm praying about this, and God the Spirit might go, you got your priorities wrong here. You need to be thinking about this. But that it's harder for that to happen if you're praying and you're distracted. It's so much easier for it to happen, humanly speaking, when you're quiet without distraction. And the word of God, the spirit is using the word to prompt things in your heart. And finally, you experience mercy. And so if you would, look at the outline in your bulletin. I have put in there, the, actually, this is the verse. When I pray, this is the verse I frame all my, all my prayers from Hebrews four fourteen to 16. This is the Magna Carta of Christian prayer. If you had ever had any reason to doubt there's complete freedom to approach God in prayer, this is it right here. So let me read it and then I'll pontificate for a minute and then we'll be done. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Beloved, you know that the The role of priests in the Old Testament was to pray for the people. If the prophet had his back to God and said, thus saith the Lord to the people, the priest had his back to the people and interceded for them. Jesus is that final high priest. You need no other. And he has passed through the heavens through his cross. He's on his throne because he suffered the torments of death to earn the right to sit down at his father's right side and rule all things as the victor over sin, the devil, death, and the law. We could, we could say a lot more about this. We have a high priest who's passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And he wants to tell you something about the earthly struggle of Jesus' priesthood. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You see what he's saying? You can pray about any struggle. You can pray about any temptation. You can bring all your weakness, all your frailty, all your failings to Jesus because he gets it. He was tempted in every way as you are, but he never sinned. He endured through the temptation that he might offer himself a righteous sacrifice for our sins. A sacrifice, the Father says, you, my son, are accepted, come to heaven. And if you know this Jesus by faith, you're united to Jesus by faith, the same is true of you. You are accepted, you're cleansed, God will treat you as if you have done everything his son has done. I'm preaching too long of a sermon on these verses, but you can see what all that's in here. Now, verse 16. With what demeanor do you approach God in prayer? Let us draw near with confidence. Confidence. When I pray and I quote this verse to the Lord before my prayers, I pause at confidence and I say, Lord, my confidence is not in myself, it's not in my ability to pray. I am assured that you, Lord Jesus, who ever live to make intercession for your people, you will make these prayers what they need to be before your Father's ears. My confidence is in you. You're the King. You're the Lord. You know all things. You do all things well. Nothing escapes your power. My confidence is in you. Okay, let's keep praying. We Draw near with confidence to what? The throne of grace. He's already annexed in so many words the throne of judgment that the Gentiles are blind to. There's a day coming when everyone's going to be judged, some to eternal life, some to eternal perdition, but for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the throne of God is a throne of grace, won by the victory of Jesus over your sin. It is grace, grace, grace. That's where you're going, and that's why he says, and on our way to that throne, that you might receive mercy And find grace to help in time of need. Isn't it great that every time you pray, you pray these words, what are you reminded of? Your need for mercy. Your need for mercy. When I pray for our staff, our elders, people I pray across the country. I start in California, go to Maine, down to Virginia. Virginia gets prayed for last. Just the way I do my prayers, I say, Lord... Have mercy on all the people I'm about to pray for. Don't hold their sins against them. For Jesus' sake, remove their sins as far as the east is from the west. Lord, let their lips drip in praise of your mercy. Let their minds be caught up in the wonder of that mercy, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And let their hearts be in the grip of that mercy, producing worship and staff, humble, other-centered servanthood. I pray mercy on people. I'm reminded of my need for mercy. And then finally, he says, you might find grace to help in time of need. There's no need. Jesus Christ does not delight to meet in on your behalf. There's grace for every need. Grace, a boundless grace. His victory over death, his resurrection assured that there is a fountain of supply, benefit, Grace, strength, Holy Spirit wrought, fill in the word, power. He has opened up a fountain, and it is inexhaustible, people. It is inexhaustible. What you need to do is access it through prayer. Grace to help in time of need. Pray up those needs for yourself, for your family, for your friends. I'll close with... Uh, the words from the hymn by John Newton. He was a slave trader in England in the 18th century and I was dramatically converted and he wrote a number of hymns. This one's in your hymnal. It's called "Come Come My Soul, Thy Suit Prepare. But he has a line in there that I'm almost quoting to the Lord a whole lot. I'll just leave it with you. Thou art coming to a king large petitions with thee bring for his grace and power are such None can ever ask too much. So I'll say, let's pray, and then I'll pray that prayer. Let's pray. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring for his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much of the Lord Jesus Christ, who ever lives to make intercession for his people, by whose spirit we are moved to be praying people. By his constraining, restraining goodness and grace, he keeps our hearts in his love. And what shall we render to the Lord for all his benefits to us? We will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Amen.